what it sounds like. Hundreds of tiny frogs hitting tiny drums. That does not sound like a noise that comes from within the frog. That sounds like a percussion instrument. It's interesting that you think that, actually. That's um, it's quite an astute observation, Ben, that you've got there about the uh, musical qualities of this particular beastie. Oh, is it... I wouldn't say drum, though. I wouldn't say drum. I'll give you another chance oh. to pick a different musical instrument. Not drum. Not a drum. That's my impression. It's quite a good impression. Yes. No practice. Not a drum. If not a drum, then uh, I, it's too big of a clue, actually. I could give you a clue if you want, but you'll 100% get it because I know you like films. That's just led me even... That's, that's just leading me even further Here's a clue. Away. Here's a clue. Okay. You got a pretty mouth. Oh, so I see. You're going the whole, like... Okay, so, like, ba- so banjo frogs. Yeah. Ah. Ah. Specifically, the eastern banjo frog, Limnodonastes dumerilli, endemic to Australia. And I have to give shouts to Jafe, one of our patrons who sent this frog, who sent this call. Yeah, great call. And he apparently once found one in his garden, lucky devil. Winner. Yeah, it's an eastern banjo frog, also known colloquially as a pobblebonk frog. (laughs) Whoa, that's way better. Forget the banjo. Yeah, Pobblebonk, after its distinctive bonk call, which is likened to a banjo string being plucked. Yeah. There's apparently a bunch of different subspecies that all have different colours. Excellent. Yeah, they're quite seven to eight centimetres long, warty backs, quite a big head, big eyes. Tadpole stage can last for up to... Yeah, the tadpole stage can last up to 15 months. So tadpoles for quite a long time, like swamps, dams and ponds associated with forest and heathland. Yeah, they look like they'd make that noise. Yeah, they're burrowers, right? So during the dry times, and sometimes even just during the day, if they don't fancy it, it's not wet enough for them, they'll burrow underground. And uh, like so many frogs, they can be seen in large numbers after the rain. They come busting out of their underground burrows. And over in the right conditions, they can spawn en masse in just a few days. So I think it's fair to say they are explosive breeders. And sometimes they cool underground, cheekily. And they'll do that after it rains. <laughs> that was really confused, people. You can hear it just emanating from the ground. Yeah. Oh, what is that? And actually, interesting little fact about this frog is that it was the very first... Oh, actually, no, it wasn't the first frog. The eastern banjo was the first of its species to have its genome sequenced, which... I don't know how many... Amphibians have had their genome sequenced now, but probably loads. Quite a few, because definitely the old Xenopus, African oh, yeah. Claude, and I think Axiolotls have had theirs <laughs> done. Axiolotl. <laughs> that's, that's how you pronounce it. Is it? No. no. <laughs> Axolotl. Yeah, well, so. I feel like there needs to be an extra syllable in there, and I'll stand by that. Good, good. No, you, you stick to your guns, mate. I think cane toads have had their full one done, too. Have they, yeah. Pretty positive. The genome has 2.38 gigabases, which I think is millions. I shouldn't have said it if I wasn't sure. Gigabase. What does giga mean, Sounds ben? more like a billion, right? If we're going on bytes, kilo is thousand. Mega oh, it's is billion. It is billion. Giga is a thousand mega, so it's like a true billion, right? It is a true billion. Wow. Okay, so No, yeah. not a true... A regular billion. An English billion. No. An American billion. An American billion. As in a thousand... A thousand thousands. <laughs> yes. Wait, isn't a thousand thousands a million? Well, then I mean a thousand million. A thousand million is a billion. And this has 2.38 billion 
individual nucleotide bases, A's, T's, C's and G's in its genome, which if anyone's wondering is significantly more than my study species, the Escalapian snake, which has 1.54 gigabase genome. Interesting. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't think know. it just means there needs to be a lot of information to produce such a comedically looking <laughs> frog with such a glorious sound. That's all yeah. that means to me. Yeah. So yeah, thanks to Jay for sending that in. Super cool frog. And yeah, just to introduce us, I'm Tom Major and the man with whom I'm speaking is Ben Marshall. We are the Herpetological Highlights podcast. And in this episode, this is episode 139, and we have got a Patreon episode selected by our friend Ross McGibbon. And Ross wants an episode about the behavior of Australian elapid snakes, elapids being venomous snakes of the family Elapidae. The family contains all the front-fanged venomous terrestrial snakes in Australia, representing something like 77 species. And you'd think, given how many species there are, and the fact that people are always banging on about venomous snakes in Australia, there'd be loads of stuff about their ecology. And actually, that's not the case. It's mad how little we know about the wild behaviours of this group. Yeah, that said, we have managed to find some cool stuff. Yes, we've got two papers that get halfway, and together, hopefully, we get we have a couple of nice insights into elapid behaviour. But it, I don't know. It's it's whenever you get snakes are tricky. Snakes are tricky. You know, they're hard to study. They're too mysterious. They're mysterious. They're cryptic. They're difficult to track because they don't have like necks that you can put a little collar on. They don't leave footprints. Yeah, it's, yeah. They're not necessarily food motivated all the time, so it's hard to do like behavioral stuff on them because you can't like give them a fruit pastel when they do something right like it's tricky <laughs> but nevertheless we've managed to find a couple of papers one about death adders and then the second paper we're going to talk about we're going to go old school for a paper about the eastern brown snake but i'll first of all introduce the one about death adders so this is by crow riddell dix peterman nankivell ford luddington simas dunstan partridge sanders and allen published in 2021 and it's entitled from matte banded to glossy black structures underlying color change in the caudal lures of southern death adders published in the biological journal of the linnaean society mm-hmm. so so caudal we're luring. back on caudal luring mm-hmm. caudal luring we like caudal luring caudal luring's fun it's where it's a common feature of snakes that lie in ambush so death adders are ambush predators by their very nature and caudal luring is where they waggle their little tail in an enticing manner to try and trick prey into coming along kind of like an anglerfish or um a person fishing with a lure even you know there's lots of examples of this in nature and caudal... I think the best is though spider-tailed viper like oh yeah that is the chief snake caudal luring example where your lure yeah. looks like a spider phenomenal and i'm glad you brought up the spider-tailed viper which can you remember the scientific name of that creature pseudocerastes arachnoides <laughs> yeah correct and um <laughs> i actually think that in this paper they say that Death adders, Australopapuan death adders, which are the genus Acanthophis, are thought to be unique in that juveniles and adults use caudal luring to dupe their prey. I'm pretty sure that the spider-tailed viper is still using its little lure, even when it's not a fully developed spider mimic. Yes, well, they were talking about basically they grow more elaborate with age, don't they? And they were showing that the older ones had damage to them. I would suspect that the issue is that the juvenile caudal luring has not been properly documented as of yet. And that's why we don't like absolutes. But (laughs) what I will say is that their assertion that is correct is that by and large, 
This is something which is seen in vipers and boas. I'm sure there's others as well. But by and large, this tends to be something which juvenile snakes do. And then as they transition into being adults, it usually isn't so much of a thing. Like they tend to adopt different strategies. And because of this, what you tend to see is that a lot of these vipers and stuff, or in this case, uh, and lapid, will have very brightly colored tails. And then as they get older, it will sort of change to match the background Mm -hmm. of whatever they're sitting on so usually the tail is very conspicuous and obvious and brightly colored when they're babies but then by the time they reach adulthood it kind of changes to blend in with the rest of the adult coloration and they sort of rely more on camouflage and just waiting around for their prey but yeah they noticed that this particular species and the species we're talking about is acanthophis antarcticus aka the common death adder Both the adults and the juveniles use their tails as a lure, despite the fact that they change colour through that time. And just to sort of help people visualise these creatures, common death adders are these fat little snakes. Really, really fat, right? They're pretty rotund. They're they're chunky. They're real chunky. And they have big meaty heads. You'd think it was a viper looking at them, but they're not. They're actually elapids, like all the venomous snakes, all the front fang venomous snakes in Australia. And... um, They give birth to live young like vipers, but that's just another example of convergent evolution that goes along with their general appearance. And the genus Acanthophis means it comes from acanthi, which means spine, and ophis, which means snake. And it's a reference to the little tail spine. They have like a little pokey spine on the end of their tail. And that's what the genus is named after. And Antarcticus simply means southern and This species does hail from Southern Australia. Presumably it was first described from Southern Australia. We now know that they're also found in the east of Australia, but, you know, don't let that get in the way of a good name. And the population that was particularly the focus of this study was one in the Smoky Bay, in Smoky Bay, South Australia. Yeah, so consistent caudal luring from young to old in this beautiful chubby viper that's not technically a viper. What's the deal then? What's the deal? Because what we do, what we've hinted in the title, is that we do see a shift in the tail morphology and coloration. So that's what they were looking at, is okay. The tail's different. How is it different? What might that suggest in terms of the snake's ecology and behaviour? Like how, because they, if they're caudal luring all the time, it's still got to work, right? The, mm-hmm. Animals tend not to do things that don't have some sort of reason somewhere yeah (laughs) it doesn't have to be a super rational reason no uh, no. it's still there yeah so when they're babies they kind of have this sort of like more gray gray and black banded tail but it's not very shiny is it it's quite a quite a matte dull color they did some pretty intense i don't know the word for it looking at the microstructure of the scales yeah yeah and basically you've got two ways of generating color you've got like pigmentation and you've got uh structure and structure in this case is how they've pulled off a very matte finish, which is very similar in sort of roughness to the rest of the body. So it seemed, you know, nice rough matte finish on these young snakes. Yeah, and those young snakes are waggling around and they're presumably successfully catching prey. And um, as they get a bit older, when they sort of move into juvenile phase, you start to see a little bit of black coming in on the top of the tail. But you also see yellow underneath, right? It starts to become yellowy. That yellowiness increases into sort of sub-adult phase where you've got black on top and yellow underneath. And I think the juvenile and sub-adult lures are broadly quite similar. Yeah, certainly similar in terms of their like reflectance and stuff. Um, similar in terms of the way they appear to prey. 
but they do have it's actually mad because when they're neonates we said you know when they're babies it's just sort of black and gray stripes and then they become juveniles and it's like black on top yellow underneath but with this like clearly defined white stripe along the side mm -hmm. and obviously they're using that successfully and then as they move into being a sub-adult a bit bigger it's just black on top yellow underneath but still still more or less the same sort of shape but then by the time they're fully grown adults it's jet black and it also gains this kind of spiky appearance and it also becomes very shiny yeah glossy as they say yeah 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 and um they talk a bit about why that might be the case and i mean the exact ecological reasons why this is successful they don't exactly know but they do pick out some cool stuff in the sort of discussion and one thing that i thought was um pretty cool was that when they're adults and the lure is very dark and shiny they waggle it around and they waggle it around right close to their face mm -hmm. so what they tend to do is lie in ambush and they'll have their tail positioned extremely close to their face so that anything that lure is lured in to try and bite the tail, any sort of bird, any sort of lizard that's curious about what this thing that's waggling is, will be very close to the face and then obviously it's easy to bite. But what they say is not only do they have this black tail, but they also have these very bright white spots on their lips. Yes. And when they waggle the tail back and forth, it's thought that this actually might create this kind of strobe of UV light because UV bounces off their lip scales and the black tail is kind of like not reflective to UV. So they think that this might create a kind of like bizarre strobe-like effect for animals that can see UV. And obviously, if you're an animal which has never experienced strobe lighting before, it's probably quite curious. Go and check it out. And sure enough, wham, game over. Yeah, it's intriguing, isn't it? That you've got this shift. It'd be nice to see whether there's still some UV reflectiveness on the juveniles and things and see what, if that transition, if assuming the juveniles don't have it, sort of matches up with the transition in the tail morphology. Because presumably it would. It does a bit. It does a bit. Yeah. The neonate caudal lure, this kind of like white and grey black bands, and also the juvenile lure, which is grey, do display UV signature, which they think is visible to skinks that are active during the day. Hmm. Because this is the other cool thing is we've got a shift ontogenetically as they get older in prey types too. So the assumption is that this lure is changing. The behavior is staying relatively the same, but the lure is changing to accommodate the need for sort of larger prey. I mean, they draw attention to the, the, the like the glossiness being larger, sort of beetle-like or arthropod-like later on. And possibly the sort of shift in coloration, like what you're highlighting, shifting from smaller lizards to something that's more, that works better with sort of medium to small mammals. Like it's, you almost need a lot more details on the visual, what's the word? You know, where you can look at a thing through the eyes of another beastie because you understand oh. what wavelengths its eyes pick up on. Yeah, like models of predator vision. Yeah, basically, if we had a better idea of that for. Uh, skinks, birds, mammals that are preyed upon by this species, you'd have a better idea of, okay, which one of them are targeting. Because I cannot remember, we had something a while ago that had a very specific band of UV that was seen to match up perfectly with bird like visual sensitivity. And I cannot remember what it was. Oh, it was the blue tongue skink's tongue. Yeah, okay, blue tongue skink. Yeah, where it sort of matched up. And that was an aposomatic, like, scare the bird away sort of thing. But it was so tightly associated with the predator's visual sort of capabilities, their, their sensitivity, 
I wouldn't be surprised if something similar is going on here, if it is a shift in response to the prey that they're going after. Like, you'd expect those to match up, the mm-hmm. wavelengths of UV, right? Yeah, and they kind of think that, broadly speaking, the juveniles of this species, these death adders, are kind of more active in the daytime, more likely to be luring animals which are daytime active, and then mm-hmm. the adults are more likely to be active in the night, so they need a signal which can work in the night on animals which are nocturnal and they do say it needs testing it needs testing we need behavioral experiments we need to know when these animals are luring and to be honest i remember all that really cool stuff that was done by um xavier glaudas and co over in um south africa with the big bitis vipers Mm -hmm. yeah someone just needs to get some cctv on these bad boys because i bet you they don't go anywhere (laughs) sit and wait and see what happens yeah because i can't imagine these little fat boys are going very far are they well it certainly seemed like the whole setting up CCTV on stationary or ready to ambush vipers is a pretty pretty good way about going going about things. It certainly seemed to work. So Yeah, that's how they discovered all the lingual luring, isn't it, with the tongues. Right. The tongues for and they only poke the tongue out when there's a toad nearby. <laughs> this thing does take a lot of effort, like it is a whole a whole study to do, but very intriguing. Sorry, changing subject. They said that the sort of aposomatic function of the tail and the tail coloration for juveniles is not super likely. Well, so they're not using it as a warning. Right. Because that's immediately where my mind went when you had the yellow underside. Because I'm like, why would you have a different coloured underside? But also the sort of black and white striping or grey and black striping of the neonates and to some extent the juveniles. It did remind me of like young Toke gecko tails, mm. which I don't think Tokes are using caudal luring and as far as I understand it, the black and white is to catch attention. So that's the bit that gets bitten. They can drop their tail. They get away. Job done. So it could do both. It could do luring prey and distracting predators in a pinch. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if there is like a, a dual purpose going on, because that would also explain this sort of shift to some maybe what we're seeing with the adults is not necessarily only a shift in prey, but a shift in predator pressure as well. So a sort of selective pressure is released. They don't need that striping anymore because they're big enough that the predators that were that way inclined to go for something stripy are no longer sort of there. So it's not worthwhile anymore. I don't know. I couldn't help think about it in comparison with specifically Toke Gecko Tales. And that's... I like it. It could well be the case. It could well be the case. And I mean, evolution would love that, wouldn't it? Dual purpose for a tail coloration. Right. Especially if you sort of okay, this is something that's already quite sort of flexible and changes. It's sort of the easiest way to help, (laughs) maybe. I don't know. Yeah. They say it's unlikely and it makes sense that it is because it seems to be so nicely tied to the prey sort of angle. But I don't know. Could be. Could be. Well, that is the tail, the caudal luring display of the southern death adder, which is Acanthophis. Antarcticus and the fact that they're unusual because they caudal lure well into adulthood and they seem to change how they use the lure and the lure itself changes to accommodate the luring of different prey which is pretty remarkable really so we've done a little bit on death adders and as we promised at the top of the show we've got a paper about the eastern brown snake so this one is Whitaker, Ellis and Shine all the way back in the year 2000 the defensive strike of the eastern brown snake Pseudonia textilis the defensive says it twice uh, functional ecology this was published in and uh, yeah 
We're talking about the eastern brown snake, Pseudonia textilis. It's a large, slender-bodied, highly venomous elapid snake. So this thing is big and it is venomous. And it is, they say in the paper, it's responsible for the most snake bites of any venomous snake in Australia. And that is true. Uh, Oh no, excuse me, the most human fatalities, they say. But there's only a few a year. It's really actually quite rare. Very, very few people die from snake bite in Australia. It's important to note. And the reasons for that aren't fully understood. But obviously, Australia has very good anti-venom, very good hospitals. And people, by and large, are fans of modern medicine. And those things kind of contribute, they think, to uh, the lack of fatalities, despite the fact that there are a lot of venomous snakes. And a lot of snakes in Australia as well also live kind of um, out in the sticks. I think they call it the bush. And... um, They don't necessarily come into contact with people as much as they might elsewhere. And so the point of this paper was basically to wind up a bunch of eastern brown snakes and really get a grip on what they do when they're bothered. Like, are they actually trying to kill you when you're harassing them or not? Yeah, they had a couple of um, sort of things that they wanted to test. One chief one was, oh, they're more like, you know, they're more grumpy and therefore likely to bite during certain months where it's warmer, right? Ah, yeah. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Ross was actually initially interested in uh, whether or not there was like any evidence. Because, you know, you sometimes read that testosterone makes snakes crazier and angrier. So that actually does relate to this quite nicely, if there's a sort of different times of year where they're more likely to be livid. But were they not basing that mostly on the temperature they were at? Yes, they were doing temperature in this. They weren't, all the snakes were tested at the same time that was outside of any sort of mating season. So it was separate from that. They they were very careful to separate it from that. So it doesn't answer that question, but it does answer somewhat the temperature question. But yeah, like you say, basically they've got a bunch of snakes and they harass them until an action occurs, basically. And they're going to record things like speed, accuracy, effectiveness, general sort of what sort of behaviours they're doing during that time. Also like displays, things like that, whether the bite was dry or not. Yeah, to get an idea of, all right, what's affecting their effectiveness when it comes to defensive strikes. And these are, um, they're called Eastern Brown Snakes. And as is so often the case with Australian animals, it's an extremely accurate name. They are pretty much just plain brown. But when you bother them, they have some quite cool displays, which are somewhat reminiscent of cobras Mm -hmm. not quite as dramatic of a neck fan the ribs don't have that same ability to sort of flex out and create a big sort of wall of meat which makes them appear much larger but nevertheless they will still stand up insofar as an animal with no legs can stand up and uh sort of display the neck and spread it out a little bit and sort of raise themselves off the ground and it you know it looks quite imposing and the other thing they'll do is they call that the high display and then the partial or low display is where they sort of flatten the neck out and then they stay low to the ground and when they have the high display they tend to open their mouths threateningly with the low display mouth open not such a thing it's more just like i'm angry and i'm looking slightly different so that you can tell i'm angry yeah so and yeah they compared small snakes big snakes where do you want to go with it I think we just dive straight into results, just follow their sort of their train of logic, because I think it was laid out quite nicely with a general thing of it took quite a lot of harassment to prompt a defensive strike, I think is relatively fair to say. So the mean was 44 seconds, but this did range from zero to 265 seconds. So 
Zero. Yeah. One of them was so, livid already. <laughs> one snake was definitely not having it. But yeah. by and large, 44 seconds of harassment is not a short amount of time. You have to be pretty no. persistently irritating a snake for 44 seconds. That's not like stepping on it and apologizing and moving away. No. Yeah. The likelihood is that if you did that, you'd get away with it. 44 seconds. Yeah, you've both then made the decision to interact. Well, the snake hasn't. You've made the decision to interact with the snake, come what may. Right, because most of that 44 seconds is trying to leave. <laughs> yeah. Or trying to hide. So it's clear that they do require quite a lot of poking and prodding to elicit a response. And this does seem to be somewhat dependent on temperature too, but potentially the opposite of what you'd expect, where where they're closer to their ideal body temperature, they tend to be more relaxed. So basically we had they tested 18, 24, 30 and 36 degrees body temperature and the time before first strike was a lot higher for the 30 degrees temperature, like considerably so. So if the snake's comfortable, it's, chances are it's sort of more relaxed and chilled and therefore less prone to a defensive strike or slower to a defensive strike. That to me is quite curious. I mean, it suggests that maybe uh, at their preferred body temperature, at their temperature optimum, they feel most equipped to get away. And so they're less likely to bite. Like the bite is more of like a resort when they're either too hot or too cold to operate most effectively. Like, oh, I'm just going to go for a right. bite. Which, which does make cool. some sort of sense. It is worth mentioning that that difference mainly comes from the smaller snakes. The smaller snakes tended to be faster to bite in general, I believe. Or less hmm. oh sorry slow yeah smaller ones had a longer delay to bite sorry larger ones were quicker yeah so yeah larger snakes quicker to bite mm -hmm. and um the other thing was that was quite cool was that we mentioned there's these two pre-strike displays right there's the high display with which is almost like a cobra hooding and then they've got the low display where they're just sort of fanning their neck out and staying low to the ground strikes which were preceded by a full neck display so where they're just standing right up were slower but more accurate and where they had the floor display, the strikes were faster but less accurate. So yeah. if an eastern yeah. brown snake is up displaying at you and then it goes to bite you, you're much more likely to receive venom than from a snake which is doing the kind of minimal display. Right. So it really is Once a Once they're committing to the display, they're committing to doing the job properly. Yeah. That's it, yeah. That's certainly the impression. Yeah, it's like, this is not a snake that's mucking about. If yeah. you see that display and you get close, you're going to get got. And it really is just a don't muck about with me display. And uh, they really, truly mean it. It's a true display. And I suppose, yeah, that's probably part of the reason why it works. If you are an animal which has the opportunity to get bitten by one of these things twice, you'll recognize the signs and uh, know yeah. that it's not not messing around. But yeah, I think, the you know, we're talking about this as if these snakes are in any way aggressive, which of course they're not. This is all a defensive behavior. No snake wants to bite a person. And contrary to popular opinion, they say this even in the summary, is that eastern brown snakes are really reluctant to deliver bites in response to human harassment, even if they're like continuously provoked. So even in bites which happened, it's even when they struck at the human observers, they estimate that only about 15% of the strikes they recorded had the potential to cause and envenomation. So right. even Some when they strike, bluffs. yeah, most of the time it's a bluff. Yeah. So they just want you to go away. They're freaked out. They're scared. They want to be left alone. Yeah, I just wanted to jump back on your point of like the temperature and effectiveness thing because what the temperature didn't affect was sort of the speed and duration of the strike. 
So it doesn't seem like necessarily they're lacking the capacity at any point, which sort of, in my mind, doubles down on the what you're suggesting there, where they're, they're reluctant to bite. It's not like they're suddenly losing capacity to be able to bite in a certain temperature or something. They're perfectly capable of it. It is a behavioural reluctance, mm. which is intriguing. Hmm. So I think that's just about it, isn't it, for the uh, defensive strike of the eastern brown snake? This is a proper classic, like, 20 years old paper, like, mucking about with snakes this much. I don't know if it would fly anymore. Maybe it would. Maybe it's kind of worth it because it actually has a human health implication. I think it's got quite a lot of implications. I feel like it's done in a robust enough way that it sort of warrants it because you're not... Like, you're doing, um, you know, you're obviously stressing out the snake a lot, but it's not chronic stress. And once the study's done, it's done. And if you were to do it in a way that it was a lot of individuals, but very little per individual stress, I think that would be another way of sort of upping the how ethical it is, because you're not subjecting each individual to something wildly stressful. I think you could have made this more ethical with like a cutoff time, because mm. these guys did keep harassing them until a strike was elicited, which is very tidy in terms of sampling design and worked in this case because the max was still something that was viable to do. But you could have said, you know, you could have done a binary of strike, no bite within a minute or something along those lines. So you didn't exceed this like a longer stress period. Still not as long as those poor tortoises had to spend on the ground. <laughs> Yeah, well, that Not one close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're going to compare something that's, mm, yeah, no, this one, I think uh, I'd be uh, far more comfortable, far more comfortable doing. And I think it's also, it's nice that it's dispelling some of the, um, you know, hyper aggressive snake myth stuff with just straight up data. Because the temperature thing, if it was an instance where temperature did make them more likely to bite during you know, oh, the hotter months they get grumpy and they're more likely to bite, you know, with dogs trying to get people's biscuits and stuff, it would be an important piece of information to know. It's like, watch out for these snakes during this time. You could up sort of attention and sort of anti-venom availability during those times. Like, you could sort of use temperature and weather and climate to predict the likelihood of bites. That might help you sort of optimise your response. Hmm. So, yeah, I do like this paper. I think it, it works really well, I do think your mention of the whole like mating season thing would be a really intriguing addition to it, but very hard to study in practice. You've got so many other things that impact likelihood to bite during that rather than just the mating sort of thing. Like snakes are moving more, they're going out and about. You know, you've got different weather, you've got different seasonal seasonal weather during these times too. So it's, there's a lot of covariates to deal with. Hunger. That too, yeah. I'm much more likely to strike if I'm hungry. Strike hard, strike fast. Yeah. Hanger. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so uh, thanks again to Ross McGiven. Another really cool suggestion. I hope we found some suitably interesting and lapid... I hope the combination papers. of the two, yeah, gets, gets something substantial, yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, if you want to become our Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. We are extremely appreciative of that. It's super kind for people to donate. But equally, if you want to listen for free, go ahead. And Ben, have you got any other business no, this I don't. week? No other business? Nope. So I just wanted to say it was a few episodes ago now. We did an episode on the um, geckos of New Caledonia. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mentioned then that or well, we were talking about the fact that it was likely that this New Caledonia, which is the 
group of islands to the northeast of Australia, out there in the ocean. Has a bunch of geckos, but it's likely to get a bunch more. Well, just a week later, 38 new species were described. Excuse me? So, uh, yeah, 38 new species well, there in we go. the that's, genus. That's the next Bavaya. 38 species of the bi-week sorted. We'll just do one of those every Mate. single week until we're done. <laughs> you imagine a figure with 38 different species of gecko on it, and that's what is in this paper. It's pretty wild. That's... And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes for anyone Oof. interested in getting heavily stuck in. But to be honest, it's too much of an undertaking for us. <laughs> <laughs> mm, well, well, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, maybe we could do one. Well, every that's what week I was thinking. It's species of the bye week. It's not species of the bye week. It's not speciesies of the bye week. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Surely, maybe it should be species of the bye week. <laughs> anyway, another thing we had, we had a correction from Scott Iper. Scott commented on the fact that I was talking about morning geckos being parthenogenetic, as in all female, and producing clones of themselves and little eggs and all these identical little females running around, and that being the whole species, which is pretty cool. And I said that they were the only gecko. I think I probably did say they were the only one, which Scott... You said, never say an absolute. <laughs> yeah, we There's know There's always that. a species out there that's going to prove you wrong that hasn't yeah, been looked at. <laughs> Sure enough, Scott has pointed out that there are loads of parthenogenetic geckos. You've got some of the house geckos, Hemidactylus frenatus, Hemidactylus garnotti. Yes, is that suggested as one of the reasons they're such good colonizers slash invasives? Yeah, I think the key difference is morning geckos are obligately parthenogenetic ah. in that they always are. And I think most of those hemidactyluses are... Opportunistically. What is it? Facultatively. Yeah. So yes. they just do it when they need to. If there's no males around, the females can squeeze out an egg with a baby right. in it. Right. However, I said that to Scott. I was like, I meant... Obviously, I meant... I obviously meant obligately, mate. And he was like, actually, I'm pretty sure there are some populations of heteronosia, which is an Australian group of geckos known as prickly geckos. Ooh. And um, Scott reckons some of those populations are all female. So I got schooled there as well. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thanks a lot, Scott. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Good. That's all been straightened out. Excellent. Yeah. So yeah, I think that all that remains to be said really is that we're on social media. You can find us online. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.